to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Our episode today is brought to you by Twinbrook Capital Partners, a direct lending finance company focused on providing cash flow-based financing solutions for the middle market private equity community. My guest today is Garrett Ryan, Head of Capital Markets at Twinbrook, who's here to talk about the middle market deal environment. Garrett, thanks for joining me. Great to be on the podcast, Katie. After a drop in M&A transactions early and through the middle of last year due to COVID, deal activity picked up significantly in the fourth quarter, and we've seen that acceleration continue into 2021. We'll get into what you're seeing today, but first I think it'd be helpful to look back at 2020 for some context. I've been asking all of our recent guests on the show about what impact the pandemic had on M&A in their sphere. So interested to hear what the trajectory of transaction activity has looked like from your vantage point since last March. Well, after a very quiet period in Q2 and through the summer, you know, a lot of talk about how there'd be an explosion of deals uh, post Labor Day. And so everyone was sort of waiting, you know, for September 8th, which was the Monday after Labor Day for a huge you know, dump of deals that didn't really happen. It didn't really happen until sort of mid to late October. And this, this often happens in our industry where PE firms and investment banks are signaling to lenders about the timing of a, a big shift in deal activity. And oftentimes there's a little bit of a lag. So it was interesting to sort of watch the market wait between sort of, you know, post Labor Day and sort of mid to late October but when it started rolling in, it was really an overwhelming number of deal opportunities uh, for lenders. And, you know, it was interesting to see lenders slowly start to revert back to close to, but not all the way to pre-pandemic, you know, levels in terms of pricing and structure and hold, uh, which were just so dramatically different in, uh, during the summer. So by the time the fourth quarter was done, I mean, there were records galore, right? Everyone had record fourth quarter and number of deals and and the number of new platforms, the number of of commitments put out the door. And everyone was feeling great about themselves. I think if you look at 2020 in total, you would probably get responses from lenders that they were about 60%, give or take, of their normal levels. So it was really just an incredible year in terms of absolute nothing going on in Q2 and during the summer and everyone just working diligently on their portfolios, a huge run up in sort of November, December. And then suddenly in January, we're sort of back to normal. Pipelines had thinned out. And I think lenders were sort of busy enough in January, cleaning up carryover deals from December. Uh, But frankly, it was almost a period of time for people in the industry to just recover from what was a very stretched and strenuous uh, period over the holidays, which of course is normally a a quieter period. So here we are uh, with sort of Q1 in the bag and it's a relatively normal Q1, quiet enough, but building up to what we're seeing today, which is good to see more activity. So that's, that's sort of my summary of sort of the what everyone knows to be the activity of last summer through the fourth quarter and into Q1. Gary, you talked about transaction activity from last year through early 2021, which brings us up to the present. Can you tell us more about the market environment today? 
Well, yeah, we're, we're definitely in a different spot. I mean, I think that the anxiety has lessened somewhat. Uh, and I think that, you know, despite there's there's news about, you know, surges and fourth waves and, and pockets of that. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, most people who want to get vaccinated in the U.S. are finding ways to get their first vaccination. And I think that's fueling just a, a general mindset. And this is this has happened over the last, you know, four to five weeks. It's it's fairly recent. And I think that just is is changing people's comfort and level of optimism and how quickly the economy is going to recover. We're just looking at the front page of the New York Times today, 40% of the population in the US has received its first dose. So if you if you combine that with the state of lending portfolios, and they've proven to be very resilient in the direct lending market. And they've recovered for the most part. And I think we knew that was the case back in Q4 of last year. But there are still borrowers that were sort of eye in the storm type companies, companies that were really hit hard by COVID, uh, that relied on, you know, whether it was travel or certain consumer behavior, gyms, restaurants, et cetera, or just, you know, event public gathering uh, businesses. And I think that even those businesses are showing signs of increasing positive traction. So all of those companies have undergone some sort of restructuring or retooling. Uh, so there's a little bit of a wait and see approach around their performance. And they're oper- operating under new parameters as borrowers, better pricing. Sponsors have probably contributed equity to provide more liquidity. There's different guardrails in. So they're, they're on a runway now to operate. And I think that given the optimism I talked about, People are, are content about the direction those companies are going in for the most part, uh, all on the back of a lot of hard work and restructuring that was done last summer. So we've, we've kind of gone from the depths of where we were a year ago. You know, leverage was one times lower than pre-pandemic levels. Pricing was 150 to 200 bips higher. There was no underwriting risk taken by arrangers. There was huge call protection on debt and small holes by lenders for lenders who were even willing and able to provide debt. And here we are in a situation today, which I think many would describe as possibly more aggressive in terms of uh, market conditions and what lenders and private equity firms are doing even pre-pandemic. So it's been an interesting turn of events. Hmm. And my understanding was, you know, last year we saw a surge in add-on transactions. In terms of the mix of deals that you're seeing into 2021, what are you seeing in the way of platforms versus add-on deals, change of control situations? Talk about your your observations there. I think that the the level of new activity is very robust right now. And, you know, we're hearing from the investment banking community that they're really bullish about a rollout of new platforms. I mean, we're seeing it already. There's a lot of books coming out uh, on businesses. And I think that there's that's going to continue uh, through Q2 and likely beyond. I think if you know these change of control situations will continue to pick up this year, sponsors, they, they're going to revisit exits that were put on hold due to COVID. Given where we are timing-wise, a lot of these businesses are able to demonstrate with their financial results, not just how well they did during COVID or their bounce back from COVID, but why they are better positioned now as businesses post-COVID, you know, the changes that they've made during last year to position themselves as 
better businesses. So many companies are primed for sale and they see, they look at it out there and they see healthy equity and debt markets to support their sale process. So I think that, yeah, the timing is right to bring a company to market. I think we're going to see for the next several months, a very healthy M&A, LBO platform situation. I think outside of new platform LBOs, you know, the drumbeat of add-on activity also continues to keep everyone very busy. So, you know, whether it's a tuck-in acquisition or even a more transformative acquisition, that's, you know, fueling demand for incremental debt. And as private equity firms continue to create value on top of their initial platform investment. So add-on activity has become a huge feature of our business on both the equity and debt side in recent years. And you often see data from lenders that, you know, just add-on activity, just portfolio activity, and that is mostly add-ons, but could also include dividend recaps, but effectively it revolves around having a portfolio of borrowers that that can account for up to 50 to 60% of volume in any given period. So having a large diverse portfolio of borrowers today is a huge value to a lender because those borrowers continue to make those add-ons. And that's really what you need today because you're also seeing a lot of runoff when change of control situations occur. You have a borrower, you're lending to it. It could be bought, it could be sold to a strategic buyer, or it could just be sold to a different private equity firm and you you may not be able to continue the financing, depends on the situation. But I think to answer your question on both fronts, new LBOs and add-on activity are both driving the industry forward, which is great. I want to stay on on the point you made about change of control situations and runoff. Can you say more about what that means for lenders? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that when it comes to, you know, exits in form of change of control as an incumbent lender. So, you know, if we're lending to the company, to the borrower today, you would imagine that you're in great shape to offer and preserve that debt for the new owner. If it's a, a new, a new private equity firm, you know, the business well, your diligence is ahead of the market. Prospective private equity firms will reach out to you to gauge your interest in lending If they're successful with their bid, they want to know what the management team is like, what your experience with the company has been. So you're getting inbound calls from these prospective bidders, and some of them actually may be private equity firms that you don't have a relationship with, but it presents an opportunity to create a new relationship. So it's all very positive. I mean, you know, you're really theoretically in the catbird seat for a new financing. However, it doesn't always work that way as you know, the size of the borrower at the point of change of control can pose a challenge. And what I mean by that is that at Twinbrook, for example, we focus on lower middle market companies, which we define as businesses that have EBITDA up to $25 million. So if the business under your watch has grown from, say, $14 million of EBITDA, which is the sweet spot on the lower middle market, to, say, $35 million of EBITDA, after a few years of growth and some add-on acquisitions, the nature of the asks around the debt package from a new sponsor can change dramatically just by virtue of the size of that business. So what we're seeing, and, and this is the challenge with, to your question about runoff, is oftentimes a company like that may attract larger sponsors that are used to larger market terms and structures. 
in this example of a, a PE firm targeting a $35 million EBITDA business will demand, you know, large market terms like a covenant package that is covenant wide with no step downs and lots of other features uh, within the credit agreement that have trickled down from the broadly syndicated market, which is a, a market that they are more accustomed to. So that creep from the larger market, you know, broadly syndicated into the upper middle market is something that we see. And at the end of the day, there's a bit of a judgment call uh, in terms of what you're being asked to do. And when it comes to very large market, aggressive terms, I think at Twinbrook, it's something that we fundamentally decide uh, not to pursue. And even though it's tempting to continue with that company that you know, it ultimately comes down to your credit philosophy and risk tolerance. We're about a year out from the lows of last year. And uh, it's interesting to see a return to that very demanding level of asks by private equity firms for businesses that are north of 25 million of EBITDA. And I think that we traffic in, in businesses south of that. Uh, so we tend to stick to our knitting and uh, continue to refill our pipeline of businesses with, with uh, smaller companies. And based on everything you said, I mean, it, it sounds like 2021 is going to continue to be a busy year. I'm interested in whether you've seen any changes over the last year in terms of what borrowers and their private equity sponsors are looking for in the way of financing and and whether that varies based on the type of transaction. I think that a lot of it comes down to the, again, the size of the business and the terms that they are, are looking for. I think, you know, again, a, a lot of it is fueled by what is going on at the top end of the market. And I think that trickle down effect is, has always been there and it diminishes as you, as you head south. But, you know, the BSL market, the broadly syndicated market has been white hot since its resurgence in Q4 of last year. And that activity is driving a sort of a competing market, what I'd call the large uni market, Unitranche product. This is a non-rated, somewhat a liquid debt product that is competing with the, the BSL market. So a lot of direct lenders that play in that sector of the market, and we're talking about borrowers with, that are north of 50 million of EBITDA, they're able to provide very large holes. I'm talking about lenders that can provide north of $300 million individually. Um, so even you know, an offering up to $2 billion or more from the direct lending community is, is there and competing with that BSL market. But that mindset is shifting down to the upper middle market. Again, companies 25 and 50 of EBITDA. And that's where we're seeing some really frankly, irrational and, and very aggressive competition. And I think sponsors are taking advantage of that. I think that it really comes down to size of business and where you play in the market and um, what you are willing to do with respect to general credit agreement standards. But in short, I'd say that we're, we're seeing right now in that upper end of the middle market, a very uh, aggressive AUM, assets under management land grab, uh, that's going on, uh, which is interesting to see. I think that level of intensity, you know, and rationality diminishes as you go into the lower middle market where we exist. Don't get me wrong, there is certainly stiff competition in our level of the market, but lower middle market sponsors tend to focus on what's important to them. And that's not the cheapest priced, highest leverage deal. 
they revert to what they've always settled on uh, for selecting their lenders, and that's relationship and history. How did that lender behave during a downturn? How did they behave last summer? How reliable were they in terms of flexibility and trust and patience and going, and going through the various economic troughs in terms of the relationship between PE firm and lender over many years? And uh, I think those situations, we perform well. We stick to our relationships. Uh, they gravitate towards us. Uh, and these are long-term private equ- equity relationships. And those situations, uh, even last summer, they further serve our, our clients and strengthen our, our middle market franchise. And you've used the the word aggressive several times in the interview to, to talk about the market. And I mean, really, it's it's kind of amazing to think that that the market has roared back this enthusiastically. I'm interested to know what you think all this means when it comes to financing terms and, and deal structures within the middle market. Yeah, I think we're, we're back to a point in, in certain sectors of the market, it is, it is possibly more aggressive than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case for the lower middle market, which is good. There's a little bit of stability there in terms of expectation because it's it's more based on relationship as opposed to a truly commoditized market driven approach but i think that you know there there are certain industries that have elevated themselves somewhat uh, because of covid i think that you know overall if, if you poll lenders at any time over the last 5 years they will generally tend to say that you know sectors like energy and oil and gas restaurants retail and auto are are trickier sectors for them. They've always gravitated towards, you know, healthcare, software, financial services. And I think financial services has further elevated itself through the pandemic because I think, you know, lenders are looking at businesses now through the lens of a pandemic, knowing that it could, you know, this could happen again or some element of it could happen again. And I think that the the businesses that have struggled may continue to sort of see, you know, lower levels of leverage devoted to those sectors, you know, the transportation, event gathering, it, you know, that may stick for a while. But industries such as distribution and, and food, and as I mentioned, financial services and insurance have elevated themselves. And I think that they're, they have attracted more interest in, from both the PE and direct lending communities. I think one advantage of where we sit today with vaccines rolling out, with summer coming up, things feel a lot more predictable in a lot of ways. So for my last question, you know, Garrett, what are you expecting to see from the middle market over the rest of 2021 and beyond? I mean, you just touched on some specific industries, but I'm curious if there's anything else you would add that you're expecting to see in in the year ahead. I think that everyone is hoping for a stable year after going through what we did last year, incredibly unpredictable and unprecedented. And it was, I think it was really the speed at which it occurred, which was truly unprecedented. I think the the capital markets are hoping for a year of stability, continued successful vaccine rollout, not just across the US, but across the rest of the world too. And I think that we thrive on stability, right? If the capital markets are stable and there are few air pockets to, to navigate, I think you will continue to see 
lots of M&A activity. I think there are, there are probably owners of businesses that are ready to sell and willing to sell. So I'm hoping for, you know, nine to 12 months, and you can only forecast out that far, I think, these days of just stable capital markets, continued deal flow, and relying on your portfolio to provide good volume via add-on acquisitions. I think that is the, that's the hope of everyone that is in our industry. And, uh, you know, so far this year, so good. And I think we'll see it continue uh, through the end of 2021. All right, great. We'll leave it there for today. We'll have to have you back on in, in nine to 12 months to see how everything shakes out. But really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Garrett. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.